Hey guys, uh, before we start the episode, this is Kelly from the future, and I just wanted to issue a brief disclaimer slash apology because you will probably notice starting around the 20 minute mark that there are some sound issues in this episode. Um, I did my best to clean it up and I just wanted to say this is not going to become a regular thing. We are uh, taking precautions from here on out. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I love you, and thank you for being patient. Bye! Hello, and welcome to Book Squad Goals! I'm Mary, and this week I have a cute pet story to tell you. (laughs) Oh, do tell! Last night, I did a tarot reading for myself and my roommate, and then we did a tarot reading for my dear... Cat Edward. And his tarot reading foretold of past heartbreak. His best friend, Belly, moving away. (laughs) Current new beginnings. He's about to move into a new house. And future reconciliation with my other cat, Petrina. So things are looking up for Edward. (laughs) (laughs) Aww. Good for you, Edward. Well, I'm Kelly, and Penelope is my one little cat. And (laughs) earlier, I was thinking about how sad it is that I don't have any – I only have one picture of her as a kitten because I got her when she was one. And then, like, when I got her, I got her from some person on Craigslist. And I, like, emailed the person asking if she had any, like, baby pictures. And so she sent me one picture, and she's like, I have more. I'll send them later. And she never sent me. (gasps) She ghosted I would fuck you, Donna. (laughs) (laughs) If you're listening to this, yeah, I would email her back. Be like, hey, I'll email her again and be like, remember me? Weird in pictures, though. (laughs) I haven't forgotten. Like, your cat that you abandoned is seven years old now. (laughs) (laughs) So cute. (laughs) Craigslist cat. So I'm Susan and. This morning, I woke up to the sound of Mabel just heaving and heaving, and then she puked on the carpet. Oh, I know that story. I know that story. Nothing will wake you up faster than that, like, noise. (laughs) It's just an instant instant bolt out of bed. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I did not – I woke up so fast, it almost gave me a headache. I was like, what? Okay. But another cute thing that happened is – my friend and coworker Tiffany has a nine-week-old lab oh. puppy that she brings to it's work so with cute. her every day now. Oh. And we, she came over the other night and we introduced our dogs to the puppy, and they were like, "What is this?" And Roger decided the puppy belonged to him and just oh. stood guard by this puppy. And if Mabel or Hattie came near it, he was like, "Bitch." Get away. <laughs> so by the end of the night, Hattie was terrified of the puppy, wouldn't go near it. Oh my um, god. But Roger and this puppy like are building a beautiful friendship and I'm so excited to oh, he just wants to watch them play. I know. That's what Joe kept saying, like, oh, look, see, we should get a puppy. And I was like, Boy Joe. Watch it. If it was up to Joe, you would have Don't be crazy. dogs. Yeah, and like nowhere to put no. them. We do not have like a big house or a big yard. <laughs> so I was like, where, where do you want this dog to live, huh? Anyway, so we're not getting one, but it's nice to have one I can access every day. Little puppy. Yes. She's cute. 
It's also a ridiculously photogenic puppy, I will say. Oh, yeah. Follow Susan on Instagram. She posts Which you should. cute pictures of the puppy. Yeah, as if you would think it was my puppy. I get a lot of questions about it. Like, oh, did you get a new dog? <laughs> nope, that's someone else's dog. I just constantly post about it because she's people so People think that I have, based on my Instagram, people think I have like eight cats because <laughs> I post so many pictures of cats. There are just so many cats in my life that I love and appreciate that I can't just like limit it to my babies. Like, obviously, I love my babies the best, and I tell them every day they're the best babies in the world, but other babies are good too. Hi, my name is Emily, by the way. I was about to ask, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> um, so, my story for this week, give it a second because it's going to be about the cat eventually. Um, <laughs> on Wednesday, I had a date with my fiance. We, we have a date every week. Um, yeah, trying to keep the romance alive. No, we had a date. (laughs) I was talking to him about Wonder Woman, and he was like, uh, Wonder Woman is the best DC movie since the Chris Nolan Batman movies. And I was like, if you could see a look on my face, I was like, evil, like, stare. And I said, excuse me, Wonder Woman is the best DC movie since Batman Returns, which is the best (laughs) DC movie. Um, and so Ben... (laughs) being the good sport that he is was like all right i'm gonna for for today for our date where you're gonna go home and we're gonna watch batman returns because i can't remember it that well so i can't really speak on that uh i mean solid choice yes so we went to five places in our town that sell dvds and couldn't find it anywhere and then we realized it's free on demand on our on our television so what <laughs> never leave your house that's the uh moral of the story <laughs> we uh we watched batman returns and my cat cersei who is also known as cercelia or cerceline or cercelina really loved the movie she was on ben's lap the entire time just like engrossed and i think she really like related to catwoman um, and so now her new name is Sir Selena Kyle. <laughs> so that is my story about Cersei. Also, P was here. Yeah. <laughs> so P was here, too. So this week, we're discussing Perfect Little World by Kevin Wilson. You might know him because he wrote a novel that was fairly famous called The Family Fang. I have not read that. But maybe you have. So <laughs> here is the Goodreads summary of Perfect Little World. When Isabel Poole meets Dr. Preston Grind, she's just about out of options. She recently graduated from high school and is pregnant with her art teacher's baby. Her mother is dead and her father is a drunk. The art teacher is too much of a head case to help raise the child. That's a little offensive. Yeah, thanks a lot, Goodreads. Also, he kills <laughs> himself. So. Yeah. Izzy knows she can be a good mother, but without any money or prospects, she's left searching. So when Dr. Grant offers her a space in the Infinite Family Project, she accepts. Housed in a spacious compound in Tennessee, she joins nine other couples, all with children the same age as her newborn son, to raise their children as an extended family. Grant's theory is that more parental love on a ch- the child receives, the better off they are. The attempt at a utopian ideal funded by an eccentric billionaire starts off promising. 
Izzy enjoys the kids, reading to them and teaching them to cook. She even forms a bond with her son more meaningful than she ever expected. But soon, the gentle equilibrium among the families is upset, and it all starts to disintegrate. Unspoken resentments between the couples begin to fester. The project's funding becomes tenuous, and Izzy's feelings for Dr. Grind, who is looking to expunge his own painful childhood, make her question her participation in this strange experiment in the first place. I mean, yeah, that's the book. That's everything. You have really set the bar, just a new bar for the Goodreads description. Uh, so I want to start off with just our general thoughts about this and maybe what you rated it on Goodreads. Oh, okay. All right, I'll go. Uh, so I, the first, like, half of the book, I'd say probably, I was like, I'm really into this. Like, this is awesome. But I do think that there was an issue of pacing. Like, it's a 300-page book, and it's like 100 pages before you even, like, get to the experiment. Which I was mm-hmm. a little annoyed with. And then, like, so the whole time, I, you know, I was like, ah, oh, this is interesting. Come on, like, let's get to the experiment. And then we got to the experiment and I was like, I'm less interested now. I feel like the author was really excited about this idea that he came up with and spent a really long time throughout the book sort of like setting up the rules for this world, setting up the rules for this experiment, setting up the 10 different families, none of which we really get to know that well. And I think he really enjoyed writing this. Um, I think some of it (laughs) was a little less interesting to read. However, I was, I did really like the character of Izzy, um, who is the main character that we're following throughout the book. Um, So she lifted the material for me overall, because I thought she was a really cool character. I have not rated it on Goodreads yet. How dare you? Well, I, you know, I just, I just finished reading it this morning, and so I'm still letting it sit for a minute. Come back to me on that. But that, those are my thoughts. I had to go first, so I, I'm gonna wait and hear what you guys say, and then just be like, yeah, that sounds good. Um, I agree with you, Emily, that I think Izzy is a really great character, and I think she's a lot different than a lot of the main characters we usually get, because I feel like she has more of, like, a personality, and her thoughts are more, um, like, independent of what the reader might be thinking, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. She's, like, not that typical character who's just your bystander narrator who's just listening and observing. She's doing more than that, or, like, thinking more than that. Uh, and I do agree that I think it gets less interesting once we get into, like, the logistics of how the family works. Um, there's a lot of talk about like what our schedules are like and stuff. And I feel like, like I'm in this project and I have to learn the rules and I'm like, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> yeah. I just want to hear about who's sleeping with who. I don't want to know like who's making dinner tonight. Yeah. I was hoping for some more trashy drama with the family. Yeah. Like we get a little bit of it, but I was hoping. Yeah. I mean, it's a reality show setup. You want some reality yeah. show trash to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to say I agree that the pacing, like, you know, it takes forever to get to the family. But I really liked all the stuff leading up to it. Uh, Like, I really like learning about Izzy and her past and all that stuff. So it's hard to say if it would have been better if the author had paced it more to focus on the experiment. But I mean, like, even even when we get to the experiment, the pacing is weird because then it's just like we get like little snippets of things that happen in each year. Yeah. And it felt very – it felt rushed. 
It even skips some years. Yeah. yeah. Um, but overall, I did enjoy reading it, and I would probably recommend it because I do think it's interesting, and it's like, you know, it's a nice read, I think. I'll probably give it like three stars when I do review it, which I haven't yet. <laughs> Susan, general thoughts? Uh, I have also not actually like officially rated it yet, so um, – but I'm I'm really stuck in a three zone lately. Like I just can't get out of that. Right through. Because the, again, the I probably zone. would maybe say two and a half in this case, and I can't. So I'm gonna. Yeah. But I wouldn't say two. So I'm probably gonna give it a three, like always. So three. Um, that's got to be cheating or something. Susan, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the first part of the book and learning about Izzy, like you guys said, and I really liked her relationship with Mr. Tannehill. I thought he was a sweetie, and I liked that he was reading parenting books and um, that she had a father figure. My main problem, <laughs> whenever I see a book that starts with a family Me too. I immediately am like, oh no. I'm going to have to flip back to this about 800 times because I cannot keep people straight. And I don't think there needs to be nine couples. Like, why are there so many? Well, you probably didn't have to flip back because none of the couples are distinguishable from each other and they don't really matter. Also, it's it's a short book, you know? Like, maybe we don't need that many characters. Like, if this was, like, an 800-page book or something, yeah. maybe. I feel like they could have done the same, accomplished the same thing with, like, five couples rather than ten. Even four. Four would be where I would be comfy. I'm going to shock everyone. I gave this book a two <gasps> on Goodreads, and I considered giving it a one. You this picked book this Mary's book. choice, y'all. It was. Well, it's a book of the month book, and I do subscribe to book of the month. So, By the way, if you don't subscribe to book of the month, you should. And you should use my code or Mary's code, because every time someone subscribes for book of the month using one of our codes, we get a free book. Boop, boop, boop. But it- <laughs> we will okay, link so- to that. The thing is, yes, we will. this book had, like you guys mentioned, major pacing issues. It has, it has, I don't want to say it has too many characters, but it has, they don't, the characters are never fleshed out. They're never fully realized and they're very flat. So they're useless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the ending of the novel <laughs> oh. infuriated me to the point that I threw the book <laughs> onto the floor I was in bed reading it, and I slammed it shut and threw it on the floor. I do that more than I care to admit, honestly, when I don't like the ending. So I just <laughs> rage through. Um, so I was I was very displeased. I was very displeased. I saw the ending coming just because you always finish books before I do, because I'm slow. Mm-hmm. And you were like, oh, I hate this ending. So as it was coming up on the ending, I was like, I know, like, yeah. I know exactly what's going to happen. It's stupid, and <laughs> it's going to make me mad. So, yeah. So, what happens at the end of this book, obviously, for those of you guys who are not planning on reading this, is uh, it, after not really developing a romance throughout the story at all, suddenly Izzy is, like, madly in love with uh, Dr. Grind, who she still calls Dr. Grind. Dr. Yeah. Grind is a pretty badass name though <laughs> i mean who would you rather but it get sounds with? like Preston a, like or a dr. haunted Grind? house name or you know it's dr grind you know what i mean dr grind i can't oh, yeah. do i need to explain this to you mary because you are you know a prude i said oh yeah okay just checking it. all right 
she madly in love with Dr. Ryan all of a sudden. And on Christmas, their last Christmas together, she says, I don't want you to leave. And he says, I don't want to leave either. And then they make out and they sleep in the Gag. same bed. And the next morning, their child is, or her child is like, I drip. This would happen. It's the best Christmas ever. And they eat pancakes. God bless us. Oh, I mean, I love it when people eat pancakes. I love pancakes too, but that's just too picture perfect. Yeah. Joe made yeah. pancakes this morning. But anyway. So it's real. I mean. <sighs> I'm jealous. Pancakes equal love. Mm-hmm. I This segue is talking about Dr. Grind and Izzy sort of segues into a question um, that I wanted to ask. I was noticing there aren't many real chances for Izzy to find love in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, she comes into the project, the infinite family project is the only single parent. And a lot of the other couples are sort of invested in her going on dates and encourage her to go on dates um, while she's there. Partially because they're scared. She's going to like poach their husbands or something. Which is <laughs> I whatever. mean, yeah, they do say that. Um, But at the beginning of the novel, Izzy's high school boyfriend, Hal, who is also her high school art teacher, um, (laughs) dies after Izzy is pregnant. He kills himself while he's institutionalized. And then later, while Izzy's at college, she has sort of like a fling with this bad boy named David. But that doesn't turn into anything either. Hated that character. Yeah, he was the worst. It seems yeah, inevitable that she ends up with Dr. Grind. It doesn't really seem like she has a choice in it. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, what does it mean that this protagonist, which we clearly all enjoyed, and um, you know, she's like a recognizable female character who actually gets developed, and her entire love life and her life in general is all dictated by men. Does she ever make a choice for herself? I want to talk about David for a second, because I think fucking hated this character and not in the way that the author wanted me to hate the character but i hated the character because it was so clear that he was mr wrong the entire time he was in the book like he uh is super super selfish he criticizes her art like he's a he's totally a bad guy yeah he's a narcissist he's a terrible guy and his art sounds dumb his art sounds dumb he makes her do drugs <gasps> but <laughs> like i i just like i'm fine with her ending up with dr grind if that's the way things are going to work out but it would have been cool if she had had like some sort of viable option outside and then i i was kind of i was just thinking like reading david like it would have been enough if Dave, she just realized that a college boy is just too young for her, not age-wise, but just, like, his maturity level is just not where she's at now because she's, like, dealing with older people and she has a child and she's, like, grown up. That, to me, would have been enough for her to, like, reject David because of those things, which would be decided by her and her realization about, like, her own personality and herself rather than realizing things about him. And the fact yeah. that he was a total douchebag. He's like almost unrealistically terrible. Extremely unrealistically <laughs> terrible. And it made me, it, it just frustrated me. Because I was like, we didn't, like on top of everything, we didn't need him to be like, and your art project stupid. 
Like, it was just too much. (laughs) You know what, David? Your art project's stupid. David, for those who haven't read, perhaps, David's art is he crafts beautiful pottery. (laughs) He then smashes the pottery on camera, catches it on film, and then gets high and glues it back together. I mean, that much was a very realistic asshole art student project. <laughs> yeah. Speaking as a person who I went to a state school, but I studied graphic design and I was in the art school of the state school. And let me tell you, that sounds familiar. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was that you, Kelly? Did you ever do a project like that? I didn't, but I did a lot of like really annoying things, <laughs> which I knew were annoying, just- but I knew it would get me a good. I'm just imagining like tiny Kelly in like a black beret. Essentially. I made a whole bra and underwear out of thumbtacks, and then I put them on (laughs) and photographed myself wearing them. That's kind of awesome, though. Thanks. (laughs) Uh, But I mean, like, Izzy and Dider Grind seem weirdly distant for each other, but it's not in a way I feel like I can root for. No. Yeah, I mean... Well, even in the first chapter, it's more like the prologue sort of where it takes place five years into the project and then it goes like backwards after that. But in that, she's talking about how the only person there who she could ever be attracted to is Dr. Grind. Like no one else appeals to her. Well, she did make out with Aishan. Is that how you say his name? I don't know. I don't know. Well, she made out with Aishan and she was like, I'm glad I got to make out with him and not some other loser. But that was very passive. But then they were like, we should just never talk about this again. Yeah. And then they didn't. And that was the end. But, I mean, that's another thing is like so many things in the novel seem like they're going someplace and then they just don't. Um, there's a scene when it, all of the parents are sort of getting drunk and hanging out with each other. And they say, wouldn't it, you know, everyone's going to think we're in here having sex with each other. So maybe we should just do that. Mm-hmm. And then... They're like, oh, no, that's too extreme, but maybe we should just make out a little bit. So they draw names out of a hat and make out, like, they're 15. And then nothing is just ever said about that again. Until you find out that behind the scenes, some of them were having affairs with each other, which I was like, where was I for that? (laughs) I would be very interested in that drama, but it doesn't ever get talked about until it's an issue and people are leaving the project. Yeah, I just assume that we're supposed to understand that Izzy, like, doesn't know that that's happening, so we don't know that that's happening. Yeah. Like, she wouldn't because she sees these people as her family members, and she can't imagine, like, being attracted to any of them because they're all paired off and stuff. And she's, like, you know, genuinely surprised when she walks in and finds Ellen and Jeremy going at it. (gasps) Jeremy sounds like a tool. Yeah. (laughs) Jeremy's wife says, you know, he just needs to sow his wild oats. He he just likes to have sex with other women. He'll come back to me. It's cool. Two people named Ellen and Jeremy don't sound like the names of two people that have sexual chemistry with one another. Like that, two people by that, those names have never had sex with each other. Ever. Their couple name is Jellen. Yeah. If anyone does know of an Ellen and Jeremy couple, yeah, let us know. Those are your parents. Please let Sorry. Us know. If your parents are named. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you were adopted. I'm just, I'm imagining someone emailing us like, I have proof. I won't believe it until someone emails us proof. Like the sex tape. Uh, no, not that. <laughs> Please don't send us sex tapes. We don't want those. Not the kind of mail we want. Talking about Ellen and Jeremy, there were not many characters in the novel I could remember. 
I remember Ellen and Jeremy. I think Ellen's husband was named Harris. Yeah. And then that's really about it. Doesn't matter. But it's, but there are so many parents. And at the end, they're kind of like listing off what all the different parents have done with their lives. And I'm like, wait, who's that? You got to flip back to that damn family. And even the kids. Like, I couldn't tell the kids apart. If a book begins with a family tree, take heed. (laughs) I mean, but. I don't know. I am not. We have a few. I guess everyone here is sort of a writer of fiction and poetry, except for me. Y- no, I, you are. Like, I mean, I'm not. You really. are, Kelly. No, you are. <laughs> you, you are. Both are really, you both are. You both are. Stop. I mean, my question is, is like on a craft level, what is the point of introducing characters, giving them a name, giving them a purpose, assigning them children? And then just never touching those characters for the rest of the novel. Because you want to come up with characters and names. Like, I think he just had fun coming up with characters. But, like, come up with a better name than Jeremy. Or Dr. Grind. (laughs) Dr. Preston Grind. I have no complaints about the name Preston Grind. It sounds like a porn name. Preston Grind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) ha ha. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Ew, now I really hate it. No wonder she wanted to date him, you know? His evil parents probably did that on purpose. Yes. We should say that Preston Grind has a nice little backstory. His parents were also child psychologists, like he is. And their life's work was experimenting on their own child. <laughs> Which is fucked up. It's really messed up, but it's a kind of a classic trope, I think. Yeah, it's Brenda and what's this? Six Feet Under. Yeah, it's Brenda and Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under. Billy. Brenda and Billy. Brenda and Billy, yeah. But mostly Brenda. I I love Six Feet Under. Brenda's my favorite character. It's my my favorite show of all time. So, yes. Preston Preston Grant's parents did this particular child-rearing method where they constantly did terrible things to him in order to prepare him for the fact that life is unpredictable and awful. (laughs) So they did things like, and this was the most heartbreaking part of the book for me. They got him a puppy. Oh God. And let him get attached to the puppy. And then they took the puppy away. Because they're terrible people. Yes. But then he kind of tries to do the same thing with the fish. He does. But the fish actually, died i mean like when you get a fish you kind of expect it to die sometime fish are not the you know the have the longest lives so he's like oh we can get a fish because they really like fish and if one dies it can be a learning lesson he didn't just take the fish away (laughs) but uh, as, as sort of like a result of dr grind's upbringing he begins engaging in self-harm in order to cope with terrible things. Mm -hmm. So he sort of like describes getting worked up because nothing terrible has happened in a while, or maybe like too many terrible things have happened. And then he has like a razor kit and he cuts himself very clinically. This was, to me, this is uh, disturbing and I was mad. And this is part of why I gave it two stars, because I think if you're going to bring up issues of mental health, you need to fully address them. And it seems like we're introduced to his razor kit. We have a couple of scenes of him cutting himself. And then at the end of the novel, it's like, oh, but he was happy with Izzy, so he never cut himself again. Yeah. And that's just 
such crap. I mean, this kind of goes back to our main critique of the couple next door, which we will talk about eventually. I kind of want to never talk about it, and then it just becomes like the white this, whale. This urban they legend. Were talk about yeah. it. I have to talk about it. I gotta get it out. <laughs> All right, I maybe for our next it. minisode, we'll do the couple next door. Let us know what maybe you guys not. think. Maybe not. Maybe you not. Know? You keep promising me that, and then you take it away. Well, no, <laughs> Susan, we're gonna do couple next door for the I next. I want to talk about Zoloft. So what I was going to say is this is kind of one of the issues that we have with the couple next door and that, you know, if you're going to talk about mental illness, if you're going to use it as a plot device, major or minor, um, it's really important that you're sensitive to the fact that like people who are reading your book probably know someone or are people with some sort of mental illness. And uh, you can say some really offensive things if you don't do your research and don't treat it like a actual issue that happens to people. And I I think that's a problem with a couple of characters in this book. I mean, I think that it is pointed out that he like begins self-harm when he's a child and he stops or quits uh, for the first Mm -hmm. time when he gets married and has a child. And after they die tragically, he starts again. And I don't know if that's supposed to be part of his particular form of this illness that he like self-medicates with relationships or being loved by a person, which is possible. Um, And also it's hard to say because at the end of the novel, they do get together and he supposedly gets rid of his, you know, razor kit. But who's to say that's not going to come back? Um, I don't know. I thought it was like interesting to see the way that affected him. And I do think it was handled a little insensitively, but I think, I don't know. Overall, I think, especially with the character of um, Hal, the art teacher, his name's Hal, right? Yeah. Yeah. How? So as we said at the beginning, he ends up dying by suicide after being institutionalized because he has, I think he has bipolar disorder. Is that what he says? Maybe. I mean, but it also, uh, it seemed like indicative of OCD because there's a lengthy scene of them going to the movies and he's like organizing his stuff and he has a certain way he has to do things, which like not to say that compulsions are OCD exclusive, but it is like a, a sign, a trademark sign. Yeah. Um, there's a lot going on with him, which I think was sort of, like, realistic that he didn't have this, like, textbook illness. It was, like, he clearly was very, very troubled, and I think that Mm -hmm. he's treated with sympathy and understanding, at least from Izzy's perspective. Definitely. And we get a realistic uh, perspective from her point of view as well, that she feels this frustration that a lot of people feel inadvertently when someone they love has mental illness, which I know a lot of people who I've been with have felt about me, you know? <laughs> uh, it's like, it's a thing where if you're in a relationship with someone and things go badly or that person is suffering, there's a part of you that might be upset or frustrated with them because the person who doesn't have the illness can't understand, like, why you can't not feel that way. And so there's this, like, struggle with Izzy where she feels that way, but she's also totally aware rationally Mm -hmm. that he has a problem and he can't fix it. Um, And I thought that was an interesting push and pull, and that in the end she sort of, like, has fond feelings towards him and sees him in her child and doesn't – she doesn't see him in her child and think, like, oh, God, my child is going to be like him and it's going to go badly. She sees him in her child and she's like, I'm glad that there's a piece of him here, you know? Yeah, Yeah, that's true. It's positive. Yeah. His mom's reaction to his suicide is weird, though. Yeah. Yeah. His, I mean, his parents were kind of like, well, we're not really shocked. Yeah, but it almost didn't even come across as grieving. Like, it was just, uh, it was, maybe the mom's reaction was written that way 
or the mom's like understanding of her son was written that way to highlight that Izzy is really the only one that understands him mm-hmm. truly. But yeah, that the scene where she comes to the restaurant was, um, I don't know. It just didn't sound like a parent talking to a, yeah. a pregnant girl about her son yeah. who just killed himself. It's, a, like, it's really interesting to you that they don't want anything to do with her child. What I was going to say is it, it kind of like goes off of that. It, I, I just feel like the parents in this novel are brushed aside really quickly um, for obvious reasons. I think um, in order to get them to agree to go in this compound, like there needs to be no outside help. And that's even something that they say when they're like interviewing people. But it's, it, it seemed a little convenient at times like I was really confused about Izzy's relationship with her father especially because I mean he's there but he might as well not be and I know that that's that happens but it just seemed very like well that's real convenient that like her dad is there but just like ignores her and doesn't like care about her anyone else feel that way or am I yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it is convenient from a plot perspective. Like, if you're thinking about it as a writer, it's convenient to make the dad that way. But at the same time, her dad's an alcoholic, and it's, it's like, a, it's a complicated relationship. Because when mm-hmm. you're the child of an alcoholic parent, and I'm saying this from experience, you know your parent cares about you and loves you. But at the same time, they're unable to express that love or be as involved in your life as a normal parent would. Mm-hmm. So like it is convenient, but it also I think is incredibly realistic because there's stuff going on with her dad and his alcoholism that we don't see, I'm sure, because the book's about Izzy. Yeah. And you get the impression that she doesn't think like my dad is a bad person. Um right. and he's not presented as a bad person. He's just presented as like who he is. Uh, which is unavailable. Yeah. I mean, he's grieving. So there's that. So do we talk about barbecue? I mean, I know you really want to talk about barbecue, so let's do it. I love, I love talking about barbecue. So barbecue features really heavily in the novel. Izzy works in a barbecue restaurant before she joins the infinite family project. She cooks barbecue while she's in the infinite family project, like roasts a whole hog. And also, um, there's this, a weird part of the book where the families propose slaughtering a hog in front of the children to teach them a lesson about death and then eating the hog. And it's like, y'all didn't want them to see a fish die, but you're willing to kill a live animal in front of them. <laughs> yes. I mean, ultimately, they decide not to because the project is getting a visit from Brenda Acklin, who's funding it. So they're like, well, if the kids are still upset when Brenda comes, it's going to be a problem. But over and over and over again in the novel, they talk about barbecue and everyone eats it and they say it's the best thing they've ever ate. Izzy has a particular talent for doing barbecue. And even at the end of the novel, Izzy ends up opening her own restaurant that serves barbecue. And Mr. Tannehill comes and works with her. When something's repeated that often in a novel, I often think it has some sort of significance beyond the obvious. So what do you guys think is the significance of barbecue? Or food in general, because food features very heavily. 
I think it's, I mean, barbecue is definitely this sort of meal that is often communal and often family oriented. So I think that's a part of it. Like she forms this relationship with Mr. Tannehill, which is like the closest thing that she has to a father outside of her real father. And they get really close through this process of like cooking meat. And then she carries this thing that she learned from this almost pseudo family member into her new family and then creates a community around it and then ultimately has a restaurant, which creates a community around Hmm. it. So I think it's like her way of seeking the company of others uh, where she's been this solitary person for her whole life. That's interesting because it is like her seeking the company of others. She's creating this food that is typically communal and shared in like a big group gathering. But the process of making the barbecue is very solitary, like up at all hours of the night, checking the smoker by yourself, Mm -hmm. sort of like tending it by yourself. But then the end goal is this really communal experience. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I I guess, like, I just thought, like, oh, it takes place in the South, so they're eating Southern food. (laughs) That's true. It's, like, it's very distinctive. It's very clearly set in Tennessee. They talk about that a lot. Yeah, and they even talk about, like, the different barbecue sauces and how they vary by region. And I'm sorry, but the vinegar one's not my fave. I don't eat barbecue (laughs) because I'm vegetarian, so none of this meant anything to me. I know. I fucking love barbecue. It's, like, my favorite thing. And honestly... I think here comes another fact of how the world should work from Emily. I think if you're going to eat a pig, you should not only have to watch it get slaughtered, you should have to kill it yourself. So all those kids should have had to kill that pig. That's all I have to say. Oh, boy. I don't think it would take that many children to kill one pig. If they want to eat it, they got to kill it. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) You give every kid a knife and put them on an island. Yes. (laughs) First of all, here's the thing. Okay, so pork is delicious. Mm -hmm. And we all know that. No. Even Emily knows that. Nope. She knows it. (laughs) I haven't eaten meat since I was 10 years old. However. I have no desire to eat meat. You don't remember bacon. Sorry. Okay, well, spoiler alert. Pork is delicious. And I'm not supposed to eat it for, like, multiple reasons. You know, I've been a vegetarian at different points, too, so I, I get it. But I'm also not supposed to eat it because it's not kosher, and I um, just really have struggles oh, with that. So <laughs> like, I know I shouldn't, but I'm like, but it's so good. Like, honestly, I could have, you know, vegan barbecue and be okay with that as yeah. long as I get all the delicious potato salad and shit that comes along with it and barbecue sauce. It's all about the sauce. I'm it's all so about the sauce right for now. me. I want it, the sauce on everything. I, I will say, even though Emily is a vegetarian, she is very, um, like, accepting yeah. of people who eat meat. And she's like, if you want to eat meat, cool, but don't drag me into it. But I do think that people who are vegetarians are actually better because they have more self-control. Because I would be if I felt but, like... But, like, the thing is, it's not self-control for me because I don't have to control myself from eating meat. I have no desire to eat meat. Yeah. So that's like saying, like... Oh, I can't believe you have the self-control to not eat onions. Like, no, onions are just gross, so I'm not going to eat it. Like, that's how I feel. Onions are actually ground candy. They're so gross. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard anyone say that. I am from from very close to Vidalia, Georgia, where they grow sweet onions. And until you have had a sweet onion off the back of an old man's truck... (laughs) 
You just haven't had an onion. I actually want to vomit. For the record, I <laughs> never want to have an onion off the back of an old man's truck. Like <laughs> those are the best ones. You know, as much as your adorable southern accent sounded there. <laughs> Even in Vidalia, I'm not going to have one. I feel like I got more southern. Like onions <laughs> off the back of a truck, y'all. Oh no, you did. And you like you hit that Vidalia like real hard too. It was cute, but it's funny to me to hear people like like Bobby Flay says Vidalia onions. Like, what is a Vidalia? Like, bitch, it's mm-hmm. Vidalia. Can we talk it's about Vidalia. something besides barbecue and onions, which was like two of my least favorite things? Yes, uh, no, this is the barbecue <laughs> and onion podcast. Let's let's move on and talk about the ending of the novel. What okay. made me throw the book uh-huh. across the room? Yeah, tell us about your rage. Yes. So at the end of the novel, everything ties up very quickly and very neatly. Dr. Grind and Izzy get married. So it seems like it's not going to tie up neatly. Like the project collapses, everyone moves on. But then Izzy and Dr. Grind get married and they have Izzy's son, Cap, as a... (laughs) They have her son as a son. (laughs) (laughs) As a pet. (laughs) Izzy opens up her own restaurant. Mr. Tannehill comes and works with her. It's award-winning. They win a beer, a James Beard Award, Um, which sounds fake, but okay. Like, that sounds fake that she won an award, like, right after opening, but okay. And uh, maybe it's not. Um, She also lives across the street from her favorite person from the project, who I don't remember because she Carmen? Was her name Carmen? Yeah, she's the one who at the very beginning is, like, exchanging emails with her and who treats her like a little sister. But then mm-hmm. she disappears for the rest of the <laughs> Well, there were, a, like, a couple yeah, parts Yeah, they have her. drinks and she confides in her that she, like, has a mad crush on Dr. Yeah. Grind. She's not developed as a character. Their relationship is a little developed, but you don't get a sense of, like, who Carmen is. What does Carmen want? We don't know. So it's, I mean, <laughs> the end of the novel is just like Izzy and Dr. Grind and Cap and Mr. Tannehill having an award winning barbecue restaurant, living the dream, everything's perfect. And then once a month, everyone in the infinite family who isn't an asshole comes to dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone except Jeremy. <laughs> and wait, his wife's also, is. <laughs> Cap is in a blues band. And he's yeah, ten. Cap plays the banjo or something. I was very Look, confused. that's not out of the question. That's not out of the question. There are plenty of prodigy banjo playing ten-year-olds. It's true. Plenty. I know plenty. so many. I can name all of them. <laughs> but We'll put them in the notes. But, yes. I mean, it's just such a neat <laughs> ending. And we talked earlier about how the novel has some serious pacing issues. And I think the ending is part of that. But for you guys, was this a satisfying ending? But more importantly, does it matter if it was a satisfying ending or not? I would have really liked it if one of the kids had grown up to be like a serial killer or something. And then like the parents tried to br- blame the project and... Maybe that's yeah. maybe that's in the sequel. Yeah, that's my type maybe. of book. That sounds there is good. no there's gonna be no sequel to this. I'm just saying <laughs> it didn't have enough serial killers in it for me, is what I'm saying. More murder, less barbecue. <laughs> More killing, less grilling. <laughs> <laughs> it was I had, I had to.
questions about Horror Store. And we also have some questions about our Handmaid's Tale. We love listener questions. Um, Thank you guys so much for writing in and letting us know your thoughts. Yes. Totally on your own. So let's, let's do Horror Store questions first. Jen in Hattiesburg says, in the text... Amy eventually discovers that the Orsk store is built upon the site of an old Panopticon-style prison. How does the structure of the store and the structure of the prison affect the story? And also, how does the morphing layout of the store in the present day influence the horror? So, um, for anyone who doesn't know, this is like a super common thing, but the Panopticon is a architectural design for prisons by Jeremy Bentham. <laughs> That's, that is a central guard tower surrounded by cells, essentially. And so the idea is that the prisoners always think they're being watched, even though there may not be a guard in the tower. So the idea that you're always being watched, whether that's true or not, so you live in a constant state of paranoia. Yeah, which is basically the entire concept of security cameras. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I think that affects the way you behave at any workplace because you know that there are cameras and you don't know if someone is watching or going through that footage. But if they do and they find you misbehaving, you're going to lose your job or worse. So I think that affects the prison-esque environment of the retailer system. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I think the morphing layout of the store was real scary because I hate getting lost. <laughs> That's all I had to say. I mean – I I didn't perceive the layout of the store as being morphing itself as much as I perceived, like, the people trapped inside the store were disoriented. But it's hard to say. And, I mean, I think that that's part of the – that's one of the influences of the Panopticon is if you think you're always being watched and you're constantly paranoid – you start seeing significance in everything. You start questioning everything. And so it sort of let us feel the paranoia a little mm -hmm. bit. Thank you, Jen. That was a great question. Thanks, Jen. So um, Amber in NYC, what up, wrote, The first thing that I noticed and liked about the book was the formatting. It added to my enjoyment of the book, and I really do not think it would have been the same without it if it was just a basic novel without the, all the graphics, charts, and Ikea-ness. Me too. Yeah, totally. Yes, I agree. Um, I think that Grady Hendrix did a really good job at creating this kind of retail haunted house, which made the book humorous. And then she asks, I was curious why these certain employees were the ones to become penitents. Were they chosen, predestined by the warden, or did they just happen to be there? Surely there were other employees that had guilty feelings or could have also been penitents. I wonder if it was the character's own feeling of guilt that put them there and opened themselves up to be punished by the warden or if it was all just random. And then she says, oh, and I also thought that the ending was funny how Basil and Amy still ended up working at Planet Baby after they just went through a traumatic experience. It kind of reminded me about how when you work retail, even though it sucks, you just keep going back to what is comfortable. Uh, but in this case, it made me hopeful. And then she gave us a really nice compliment, which is, I like listening in on the podcast. It's cool to hear what y'all smart people think. LOL. <laughs> We're smart. <laughs> Thanks, Amber. Okay, so this is interesting. So what do we think about um, the employees that are the ones that are like, quote unquote, chosen by the warden? Or, did they or are they just the ones that happen to be there? 
there's that. They just happen to be there, but also it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you guys have ever had the experience of like a preacher that comes to campus and nope. stands around and preaches. Well, there used yeah. to be this guy who came to my college and he would just stand out and do some preaching, but the preaching was really more like just screaming at people. So he would see, you know, he would see somebody walking by and he'd be like, you know you're a slut wearing those short shorts. Oh my god, or, that's not preaching. That's just like verbal assault. <laughs> you know that you've been sleeping with all these fraternity boys. Or he'd see someone with like a Diet Coke and a koozie what? and he'd be like, you know you're an alcoholic. Oh and he just like, he would do this. I'm kind of sad I didn't have that at my school. Side note. His name was his name was Donnie, Pastor Donnie, and one day someone just walked up Hold to on, him. Hold on, he's a real pastor? Uh, yeah. Oh I mean, I was just a crazy person. One day someone just walked up and punched him square. Oh my gosh. This is great. And it was it was beautiful. And yeah, a guy awesome. a guy who um was a music student in my school wrote a song about Ooh. it. And it's really funny. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> I don't remember the way it goes, but I definitely can um, send you guys the okay, link. Okay, can we put it in the show notes? The song, please yeah, do. Pastor Donnie. Yeah, yes, the please Pastor do. Yeah, it's really, it's really okay. great. But so Pastor Donnie would stand out and yell these things, and I don't think. I mean, he didn't know these people. There was no grounds for his comments. He was just trying to say things that were provocative to get people to listen to him, and in a way that seemed like what the warden was doing like it's not that he i mean he probably had some insight because he's a ghost or whatever but <laughs> it's not that these specific people were predestined it's that they were there so let's play on their insecurities and guilt to get them into the prison into the beehive mm, okay does that make sense yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you answered yeah, that so perfectly. And it could have been the same thing with another character. They were just the people who were there, so they were the ones who were preyed on. Great job, Mary. I can't – I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> well ditto. analyzed, especially using the Pastor Donnie connection. Y'all, I got so many Pastor Donnie stories. Yeah. Sometimes I think personal stories are the best way to explain things, and that was a great example of that. Yes. I'm surprised everyone did not have their resident campus preacher. We had one. I mean, we had multiple because my school was oh, so yeah. huge, but they didn't say stuff like that. <laughs> um, I went to undergrad in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a heathen yeah. city. <laughs> well, the school that I currently attend, there are abortion protesters who stand out with, like, pictures of yeah. abortion, abor aborted fetuses, Ugh. and, like, shove these yep. posters at people so yeah they did that at uf too there was one particular picture that was like a quarter with a fetus next to it oh god Stop. you know it's rough all over pony boy <laughs> it's pony boy <laughs> it's rough all over um so our last question is from mary k or our last question about horror store is from mary k from atlanta hey mary k what's up from heathen town heathen town georgia Heathen town. <laughs> Speaking of, so this is kind of related to the last question, or at least the first part is. She says, what do you think motivated the ghosts and the warden to do what they do in this book? Also, Basil was the only character I could relate to. Thoughts? Question mark. I still don't like Basil. Sorry. Oh. I didn't relate to him. I didn't really. Well, I talked about this before, but I wasn't really that connected to any of the characters. But I can see why Basil is 
relatable to some people. I think he was the most developed character, maybe. Yeah, and he's not even the protagonist. Yeah, but his motivations made the most sense, and I think we talked about that a little bit, um, that we could understand why he was doing what he was doing, even though his redemption at the end seemed a little... Unfair. Unfair, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Unearned. Um, What about this other question about, speaking of motivations, the other question about the motivations of the ghost and the warden... um, so is do we have anything to add to that? I mean, I think the warden just has this it's it's power, I think, still that's motivating him. I mean, seems to be doing the same stuff he did in life. Yeah, and I don't think the other ghosts felt like they had a choice because they're just prisoners and they have been for so long yeah. that they're used to doing whatever. Also, misery loves company, so if they're miserable and imprisoned, yeah. why wouldn't they want to imprison everyone else so that everyone that's has true. to live the same hell? I mean, I don't think it, I don't think his motivation was something like, "Oh, I'm going to teach these retail workers a lesson." No, I, you know, like I think it was just blind ghost rage, assert power over other people. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and there are people here, and they're going to pay for whatever they pay yeah. for. I think blind ghost rage would be a good band name. Okay, that would be a good band name for your Ooh, your blues band with a ten year old. Yes. Yep. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> we'll all be playing banjos. Yes. With the 10-year-old. This is one 10-year-old. Yeah. Uh, we'll, have Just to, right. we'll have to share the 10-year-old amongst us as a friend. <laughs> Shall we move on to Handmaid's Tale questions? Yes! yes! We, I, I love this first question. I love all the right. questions. I will read it. Um, this is from Megan from Monterey, California. First a comment, she just said she thinks the show did a good job of subtly humanizing refugees, and I wanted to talk about that. Especially, um, she was referencing the finale in particular, the finale episode, mm-hmm, yeah. um, but also earlier we do we see Luke's kind of refugee story happen, so. I definitely, well, I didn't even really think about that during Luke's story because I was barely paying attention, to be honest, but. <laughs> <laughs> but when but, Moira went, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but in the final episode where Moira makes it across the Canadian border and gets to this, like, refugee center, um, and it was really definitely – it kind of showed what it might feel like to be suddenly in this situation where you are a refugee and you never thought that would happen to you. Um, Because she goes in and the guy who works there is just handing her all of her stuff, like her ID card and her money and clothes and all this different stuff. And he's just kind of handing her all these things and telling her rules and listing stuff off. And she's just kind of staring around her like, like, what is even happening to me right now? How is this real? Um, And it was definitely a sort of surreal moment. And it made me think of, like, how would a person who has grown up in this country and had all these advantages and everything that supposedly America offers you – um, and then if we were to fall into the same sort of, like, chaos, how how would that affect you as a person who had had all of these things before, and how would you feel? Um, and I thought it was just – I thought it was really powerful. Um, it was powerful when she was reunited with Luke, but mostly just because of her and not him. <laughs> I mean, she was lucky, too, in that she's able to speak the language they were speaking to her. Like, think about yeah. all the refugees that – go to a country where they don't speak the language and how disorienting that must be. This is one place where I think the show did do a good job of, although they're not really talking about race by doing this, I think it does parallel race in real life when we're thinking of refugees coming to America. Um, race, maybe, maybe in religion too, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think hopefully what happened, what people take away from that is some kind of empathy for 
people who are displaced for whatever reason and who are really just trying to get away from yeah. something bad and not come somewhere to cause problems because guys come on yeah i don't i don't think she moira's not going into canada thinking i'm about to fuck some canadian shit up like that's i'm gonna take some jobs yeah Yeah. she's like i'm just gonna try not to get you know systematically raped every day in america right so i'm gonna go to canada and people are like of course you would do that so yeah let's uh maybe try to use that same thought process when we see (laughs) immigrants Mm -hmm. coming to america Mm -hmm. yep (laughs) What a concept. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Human empathy. Just imagine. Oh, I'll keep going with that question. Yeah. There was more. Sorry. She also brought up the lady villains. Um, and part of this we did address, but we didn't talk about Aunt Lydia yet. Mm-hmm. So she asked, do you think Serena Joy intended for things to be the way they are? I can't figure her out. And also, Aunt Lydia, I don't think she's evil. I think she truly cares for those girls and thinks that she's doing good. How are we supposed to handle that? Yes. I am here to talk about this. Go. Go. <laughs> I, I have such strong feelings about this. And I think, Megan, you're absolutely right. Um, I don't think Aunt Lydia is evil, even though she's doing some pretty terrible things. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will do awful things in the name of their own convictions. And I think Aunt Lydia is has completely bought into the system based on a religion she was already part of, probably part of um, that says that these women were living sinful lives and that they need to be reformed. And she sees, I'm guessing she sees her part in training them even though she has to do bad things to them like cut out an eye here or there (laughs) um she sees herself as doing them a service and helping them be better people so even though we see it as evil i'm sure she wouldn't see herself that way and i agree she does seem to genuinely care for the girls and wants them to succeed at their job as handmaidens but we as viewers are sort of forced to see that as evil because we have the whole picture and not an inside look into her story i think it would be great to get an aunt lydia flashback episode next season oh yeah i would love to know what she was up to pre-gilead but i think some of the moments that you see like the most real caring coming from her and this is sort of weird because she's awful to this character at several points, but when she she really seems to connect to Janine and, like, want to save her um, from yeah. herself and everything else. Um, and she's such an interesting character, but, like, Aunt Lydia is the reason she's missing an eye. Aunt Lydia is a big part of the reason she almost, well, she tries to kill herself. And then mm-hmm. Aunt Lydia is the reason she's almost stoned to death at the end. But... Aunt Lydia is also crying while she's yeah. telling them, you know, this has to be done and it, it's awful, but we have to do it. And I think that was a really powerful scene of of Aunt Lydia, um, just seeing the tears and like, it's almost like for a moment she saw that the world didn't have to be this way, but right. she didn't. So, yeah. Now I'm sad. Yeah. Oh. <sighs> Aunt Lydia, why? Thanks, Meg. Thank, thank you, Meg. Um, <laughs> so this is my dad who wrote in. Uh, oh, uh, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, Dad. We're recording this on Father's Day. 
Um, Happy Father's Day way in the past. (laughs) This is behind the scenes info. We're recording this way before we're actually releasing it because a couple of us are going out of town. Not me. I'm staying here. But a couple of us are going out of town. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So happy belated by month Father's Day. I guess your present is that I will answer these questions for you. Uh, (laughs) I got him other stuff. Um, So my dad, Charlie, from Milledgeville, Georgia. He asked a couple of questions, so I'm just going to pick some. Um, the first thing he asked, well, he said, there's a couple of lines in the final episode that capture a lot of season one. Um, I'd just like to hear you talk about these. The f- so the first quote is, it's their own fault. They should never have given us uniforms if they didn't want us to be an army. How do we feel about that quote? Well, I, I mean, I was thinking about this a lot when I was watching the finale, but a lot of the finale was powerful, like the scene with Aunt Lydia and the stoning. But a lot of the finale, to me, seemed sort of hollow and like they were capitalizing on current events. So the line, they never should have given us uniforms if they didn't want us to be an army, seemed like a little too on the nose mm. for me. And it seems really powerful, but like I can think of plenty of times when giving a uniform is not empowering at all, right? Like if you're in prison and you're given a uniform, yeah, is that empowering? If you are, you know, relegated to, I don't, I don't want to like go World War Two, but like if you're forced to wear a symbol of your religion, is that empowering? You know, a lot of times uniformity is damning just as much as it is empowering. Mm-hmm. So it seems it's a cool line, but I don't know that it resonates with me like well, it was intended. Well, I think that it's not necessarily to be about empowerment. I think it's kind of like, it's more about like unity. Unity. Yeah. That's fair. Because in situations like prison or other situations where you might be given a uniform or a thing that you're supposed to wear, uh, you recognize other people who are also in your situation and thus can form a bond with those people or mm-hmm. know at least that they understand what's happening to you. Um, and I think that's sort of what's happening here is that, like, you know, the handmaids are all so clearly handmaids because they have these really specific uniforms. And so when they're in these groups together, it's easier for them to connect to each other than it is for them to connect to, like, Aunt Lydia or other people right. around them. Right. Right. They they know they know that they have this shared experience, but they also know who the enemy is because everyone's wearing a uniform pretty much. Right. So yeah, that's what I took it as as well, is like they understand that they're not the bad like they look and say, like, Oh, you're on my side because we're in the same situation. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think unfortunately is a problem that um a lot of contemporary women have is that they don't feel supportive or supported by other women. And I think, you know, if we're talking about feminism and uh, being seen as equal, then I think it's really important that first we realize that we're not the enemy. So that's, that's how I interpreted that. Maybe it is a little on the nose, but I think it's still important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So the second quote he gave us is uh, this one. Serena Joy. Everybody answers to God, Fred, and you answer to me. God, fuck you, Fucking Fred. Fred. <laughs> On the list of minds, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Go back to Shakespearean love where you belong. 
He's actually my favorite of the Fines Brothers. But, um, oh, goodness. I know. Unpopular I know, and I know, forbidden opinion, Susan. No, it's not forbidden. Remember, hey. what did I just say about us supporting each other? Remember? I don't trust Susan anymore. Your opinion is good, <laughs> Susan. Thanks. Um, that doesn't mean I think Fred is, like, cool or anything. Yeah, he's terrible. But, yeah, this is – we talked a little bit about everything that Serena Joy does to offer it is this power move because, really, that's the only place she can express any powers to someone who's below her. And mm-hmm. I think this just way emphasized that even more. Like, she she has really little room to do anything because it all stops at Fred. Right. And basically, like, I mean, there's a little bit of a, a thing there where it's essentially saying, like, Fred might as well be God in her life because, like, that's yeah, what he, that's the function he's serving. And th- this is very much how a lot of marriages work now, especially, like, very religious marriages. I, I am not, surprisingly, I'm not a very religious person, but uh, <laughs> I've been to a lot of very religious weddings, and this is the message that very traditional religious weddings send is that the husband answers to God and the wife answers to the husband. So this Mm -hmm. is just, yeah. And that the husband is in this metaphor, the husband is God and wife is the church that follows Mm -hmm. God. I've been at the two weddings where that was like a major focus of what was happening. And I was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, I've uh, been to a lot of weddings like this and I, and some of them were dry weddings, so I didn't even get to deal with my feelings. Uh, for the record, dry weddings are the worst. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care if you don't like to drink. Just don't drink then. Yeah. Other people. Why did you? Come on. Why would you make people come and watch you get married Wait, and yeah. not give them anything to drink? Why did you we invite you me gifts here? and traveled here. <laughs> it, give me a glass of wine. Right? Come on. Okay. Yeah. At least anyway. champagne to toast with. Yeah. Come yeah. Oh Don't my god. When they give you something other juice. than champagne, and they're like, "Make a toast." You're like, "This is fucking fake. This toast is fake." Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, you guys. So yes, that's how we feel about that quote. <laughs> Dad. <laughs> Dad. Don't invite me to a dry wedding, Dad. Emily, your wedding's not going to be dry, right? No, my wedding is not going to be dry. Don't worry. We have a. Hefty alcohol budget. Oh, yes. So don't you worry. <laughs> I got you. I'm going to toast with real My stuff. dad's listening to this like we do. <laughs> <laughs> this is news to me. Where is that money coming from? Again, um, we say happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Okay. Um, <laughs> last question from my dad. How does the portrayal of women in The Handmaid's Tale compare with other dystopian movies? Um, and can you think of ones that are similar and or different. He don't eat Cersei's food. Go away. <laughs> He's like, oh, she's busy. I'm just going to come in here and eat my sister's food and nobody will be the wiser. Like, I'm not sitting it's right so here. Rude, P. But anyway, back to the question. Um, <laughs> whew, that's a good question. Yeah, I need to think on that. Speaking from like a children's lit, young adult lit perspective, I... This is an interesting question because a lot of the recent trend of dystopian young adult books has been, has featured women protagonists. So it's, it's very, and I mean, The Handmaid's Tale does too, but 
like I'm thinking about things like the Hunger Games that right. feature like strong independent women or whatever. Not that Offred isn't, but but the idea in a lot of these dystopian um, novels is that sort of like we were talking about how in the television show it seems like race isn't an issue, and a lot of these dystopian right. novels it's like gender isn't an issue. Yeah. Yes. So Katniss isn't like strong and powerful in spite of gender problems. One interesting book that I highly recommend to any listeners is that is um, The Knife of Never Letting Go by Patrick Ness. Hmm. It's the first book in a trilogy called the Chaos Walking Trilogy. And the premise is there's a planet that has been terraformed by Earth where a strange disease has killed all the women and made all of the men able to read each other's thoughts. But, spoiler, you find out that a disease actually didn't kill the women. (sighs) They were murdered. Um, So that's an interesting, that's definitely an interesting take on gender and sort of like thinking about the role of gender. And it's it's sort of like sci-fi dystopian, but... Definitely would recommend. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a sort of similar theme going on in which this is such a an unpopular opinion, but I did not really like Mad Max Fury. Girl, girl. How, how dare you? <laughs> we could do a whole podcast about how much I hate that movie. Yeah, Emily and I could just complain for a whole podcast yeah. about not liking that movie because it's boring. And it's, I could talk about, about loving it. It's the worst! And I could talk about feeling like, it's pretty good. <laughs> I have a no. really interesting take on it. Susan, we just covered the whole spectrum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but aside from how we feel about the movie, um, there is a whole thing going on in there with women being used for their fertility. True. So I think that's sort of similar. And that movie is also kind of about women trying to take back their personhood instead of being, you know, objects. So that's another parallel. But I don't know that I have anything that interesting to say about it because they're pretty Mm -hmm. similar in what they're trying to say with regards to women and their rights. Yeah, I think Handmaid's Tale is dystopian, but it's definitely like a different branded dystopia than what's like really popular now. Um, It's much more overtly political, I think. And I think if you have a dystopia, there is going to be some sort of politics involved, but it's a lot more explicit in the Handmaid's Tale, especially the television show. Um, When you're dealing with something like um, Hunger Games, uh, it's a bit more abstract. Because it's just like a whole different world. Yeah. There is no, like, recent past that is similar to ours in The Hunger Games. Or in Mad Max, really. There's, like, a long-ago past, but now we're in, like, a trash heap Mm -hmm. or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) A trash heap of light and color and noise. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like, in The Hunger Games, it's not just... I mean, people are still sort of used as commodities, but they're for entertainment Mm -hmm. purposes. And not for, you know, fertility and... Like biblical righteousness. And it's not just women, it's young people in general. And I guess I mentioned Children of Men uh, when we talked about this book two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not earlier today. LOL. <laughs> um, but I mentioned Children of Men um, because that is another uh, dystopian uh, film where people can't have babies. 
and that's the major issue. Um, but I think what we talked about is like the handling of that is very different. Um, it's not seen as like, it's the women's fault or any of that stuff. And children men from what i can remember it's been a while since i've seen it but yeah well in um the best dystopian novel ever written 1984 there is a there's a restriction on sexual pleasure Mm -hmm. or sex Mm -hmm. you know being used for pleasure so that's present here too it seems like that's forbidden yeah (laughs) yeah yeah well like there's that scene um during one of the ceremonies in the in the show where Fred kind of starts to grab Alfred's legs, like yeah. like he's like enjoying he's enjoying it. himself. Yeah, and she is like, "Don't ever do that again." And there is there are people having sex for pleasure in this brothel, but like that's an underground. Yeah, it's like a kind of thing. Like, yeah, can't yeah. deal. Much like when Winston and Julia go off to the country in 1984 yeah. and have their own little away from yeah. the thought police. The Thought Police. Oh, man, I need to reread that. It's been I've a read it like a million one. times. I love that book. It's so cool. Good. Well, thanks for those questions, Dad. Yay. Thanks, Charlie. Our last comment, not a question, but a comment, is from Janet, who is from Memphis, but is currently teaching at Georgia Southern Writing and Linguistics Department at Georgia Southern University. Whoop, whoop, Georgia Southern. I have no... I'm not doing that, but yes. I went to school there. Go Um, whatever your animal is. Janet says, I hate that some people claim that The Handmaid's Tale is not feminist because women are cruel, like the ants and the wives. Mm -hmm. But it just proves that women can be just as misogynistic as men. Hence the 57% of white women who voted for Donald Trump. People who hate the series because it ruins the book drive me nuts, too. I used to be that way about books and adaptations, but see them as different things. It's cool that Margaret Atwood is on board with the project and supports it. And it's also cool that women are taking the uniforms and using it for silent protest all over the place. Yeah, that is really fucking cool. Yeah, I did not know about that. Have you seen videos of that happening? It's awesome. It's really cool. Yeah, there are women who have, like, dressed in The Handmaid's Tale robes and gone and, like, sat in on important legislation that's trying to be passed. Oh, that's awesome. As, like, silent protest. Because you can't talk during these. Yeah. Uh, legislation things but just showing up in that outfit i mean man what a present right thank you for your comment janet yeah thank you to everyone who wrote to us and please if you have any questions or comments about perfect little world or anything else that we've discussed recently you can email them to book squad goals at book inc yay okay yay. Um, so we're going to do our things we're into right now. Things we're into. Stuff. Right now. Right now. Meow. Right now. <laughs> Stuff and things right that we like. One of these days we're going to record actually actual songs for these segments, but I'm liking yeah. what we're doing right now. Yeah. We're just improvising, you know. Just feeling it out. That was not planned ahead of time, if you can believe it. I know. Like we made that up. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, so I'm going to go first because okay. I have something that I saw last night. So I went to see, and this is my second um, Kelly Recommends, and it's also a movie, so I guess, sorry, I'm not that interesting. 
I, I like movies. It's fine. Okay, so the movie is called Landline. Um, I went to see the premiere of it last night because I am a member of BAM, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Ooh, so fancy. Yeah. So they had the New York premiere there, and it was super fun to go to it because they had a Q&A with the director after and a bunch of the cast members. Um, but anyway, the movie is called Landline. It's directed by Jillian Robespierre, um, and it's about a family in 1995. Um, the parents are played by Edie Falco and John Turturro, and the daughters are played by Jenny Slate and Abby Quinn. And it's basically about – the premise is that the two daughters find out that their dad is having an affair. Um, and it's just, like, how they deal with that situation with each other, with their mom. Um, and it's, like, a comedy. Well, it's a dramedy, I guess. But it's extremely funny, I think. Like, really funny. And I didn't see this movie, but it's the same director who did Obvious Child a couple years which ago. Which is great. Which is also starring Jenny Slate. Mm. Oh, I love Jenny yeah. Slate. Like, I you, love Jenny you Slate. had me at Jenny Slate. Yeah, and it was so cool to see her in person. She was, like, so cute. and her Oh, my God, she was there? That's I love her. Yeah, she was at the Q&A, and, and so was Edie Falco, and I was like, that was amazing. I was like, oh, my God, it's Carmela Soprano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and she was wonderful in it, too. It's just a great movie. It's, you know, really funny, and it's very, like – it has a lot of really interesting things to say about family relationships, but especially about relationships between sisters, because one of the sisters is in high school, and the other one is, like, post-grad, and they're very different people, but they have this really interesting and special relationship, which sort of builds and changes throughout the movie based on this information that they find out, and, like, how they're dealing with it. And also their relationship with their father, who's not really presented as a bad guy, necessarily. He's just... It shows that situations like this are more complicated than we often assume. Um, so, yeah, I highly recommend it. Check it out. I think it's going to be wider released soon. And it has Woo! nothing to do with the Rainbow Roll book. <laughs> no. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> okay, we have differing opinions on RR. That's okay. The thing I'm into right now is RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> I um, recently dog sat for someone who has on-demand TV, and I watched most of the current season of Drag Race there, and I've now discovered that Amazon Prime has back episodes, and so I've just been watching season after season (laughs) of RuPaul's Drag Race, and I'm obsessed with all the clothes, and I'm obsessed with the makeup. I've learned a lot about contouring. <laughs> and, uh, it's just like an interesting, fun show. I definitely, and Kelly and I were talking about this a little bit earlier today, but like I definitely have um, sort of like conflicted opinions on drag culture, but it's definitely been like a fun, lighthearted show to watch this summer. Awesome. I'm going to plug another podcast. Yeah. Um, this is actually a podcast that's been around for a while. I, I just only discovered it recently, but uh, I was reading this article about, it was like new true crime podcast to get into this summer. And I was like, I probably already subscribed to all of these, but there was one that I didn't and it's called someone knows something. Oh, and that is yeah. the best name. I know. <laughs> And they, re- they call it SKS sometimes, for short. But um, this article that I was reading recommended to start with season two. I guess the case is just more interesting. Mm-hmm. So I did that. But it's about the disappearance of this – she was 29 at the time, girl Cheryl Shepard from – she lives in Canada or lived in Canada. Um, and just a couple of days before she disappeared, her – 
her boyfriend proposed to her on live television. So there's this really odd footage of the two of them interacting on live television after this proposal. Mm. And then she disappeared almost right after that. And he was the last one with her, last one to see her. I've only, I'm only a couple episodes in, but I'm already like, what did you do to her? So, (laughs) (laughs) um, but what's really crazy about it is this happened in, I think it was like, he proposed on like New Year's Eve, 96 going into 97. And it's still never been solved. Like a body's never been found, nothing. So this case is you know, it was like totally cold until this person came in and started. Until someone knew again, something. So. Wow. Someone told knows about something. it. Anyway, I highly recommend It's so good so far. Um, that sounds amazing and like yeah. right up my yes. alley. So yeah. I'll definitely check this out. You know, we love our true crime. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I was like racking my brain. Like, what am I going to talk about? I'm going to kind of like kick it back to something that everyone's probably seen already, but like, w- wait a second. Okay. So, um, I watched Big Little Lies, just like everybody else, right? Um, and I was really, really just impressed by how they dealt with domestic violence in the show. It was very realistic, very powerful. Um, it was very meaningful to me. And so I went back and read the book. And if you have not read the book for Big Little Lies... It's really, really good. It's definitely, um, in some ways, the show is following the story of the book, but in a lot of ways, the book is different. For one, it takes place in Australia, which maybe for Nicole Kidman might have been a little bit better <laughs> since she was having issues with her American accent. I don't know what was going on, girl. I love you, but what was happening? Um <laughs> It's true. Yeah. So, and I listened to the audiobook of Big Little Lies recently and just really enjoyed it. So I would say it's a great one to listen to an audiobook. And I was really impressed. I thought it was written very well. So it wasn't just like a really good story, but I, I felt like it was a very good book. And like, I know a lot of people like already know about her, Leanne Moriarty. Um, but for me, this was my first book. And now I'm like dying to read more of her stuff because I just was like really into it. So, that's my discovery that everyone else is like, where the hell have you been? But if you haven't read no, it. I haven't seen it or read it. So yeah. I'm going to go like do oh God, both. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Um, it's so but good. definitely like read the book too, because the book was amazing. And okay. I'm very excited to read more of her stuff. So, yeah. Get ready to read our next book, The Girl with All the Gifts, which we will be talking about in a month. Susan, do you want to tell us a little bit about that book? I haven't started it yet, so... What? Um, no. <laughs> I no. Was, I <laughs> no. Um, it just, it sounded... I, I chose it a long, long time ago. Um, <laughs> and part of the reason I chose it is because one day I was at Target on my lunch break, and I was like, I'm going to get a book. And... It was on sale, and it sounded good and thrilling and, like, twisty-turny. So I wanted something, you know, yeah. quite different than the last one I picked, which was Here I Am. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it'll be really different than the first one that I that I chose. So mixing it up this time. And it also was uh, made into a movie, I think, last last Yeah. Week. So, which I've not seen that either, and I'm going to wait. I think we're, we're all waiting. None of us have seen the movie, right? Okay, cool. No. Yeah. Okay. 
So is our our mini our next mini so might be couple next door. Who can say? Who can say? Who can say? We just who can really say that. We're gonna we're dangle that. But what I forever. won't do, what I refuse to do, is reread that book in preparation for a mini so. <laughs> So yeah, please find us on all social media platforms. We are Book Squad Goals. Send us any comments, questions, feedback, uh, love letters, pet pics. Oh, pet pics would be great. Et cetera. Yeah. Yes. Especially if they're reading. Maybe your pet pic will be featured on our Instagram if you email us a picture of your pet reading a book. Pets reading books. Hashtag pets reading books. Please email us at booksquadgoals at booksquad.inc. Ink like a squid. <laughs> yes, ink like a squid. And our website is booksquad.inc. I-N-K, like a squid. And um, please rate and review us on iTunes because you love us and we need more listeners just yeah. like you. Okay, love you. Bye. Bye.